Yeah, this is like starting school. You know, this is this this class. Actually, I know there's a number of people who are live streaming. Uh, Connie said we have quite a number who are live streaming. I think um, a couple of pastors have encouraged their congregations to live stream. Uh, so that's great. That's great. Uh, I've been wanting to do this for Chafer Seminary for a while to have a uh, video class that the seminary can use. And the thing about bi- a Bible study methods class, Bruce, y'all can go ahead and start recording. Thank you. Okay. Get some water. The thing about a Bible study methods class is that it's it's good for everybody. It's basic. This isn't an ex- exegetical course where you have to know Greek or Hebrew. This isn't um, necessarily advanced. When I went to Dallas Seminary as a student, and it's still their policy that the every incoming student takes Bible study methods at the beginning of their first semester. Now, most of us come out of a very similar uh, background in a doctrinal church where everything is taught uh, in a very uh, categorical, exegetical manner. What you discover in a Bible study methods class is that it's going to turn that whole process that you're used to for learning the Bible upside down. Because that's, as we'll get into this a little more later, that's a deductive process. But what we're looking at is an inductive process, learning how to read the Bible for yourself without being dependent upon somebody else's work. And that's always challenging. The first six or eight weeks in that course, and everybody I've talked to, David Roseland, David Dunn, Bruce Bumgardner, those are all pastors, most of you know. Everybody I've talked to that came out of a background similar to ours and went into that class just felt like their head got turned inside out because it's such a different way of looking at how to study the Bible. But the end result is that you get to a point where you learn how to how to study the Bible and how to read it and understand that there are many, many things that we can all get out of the Bible, even if we don't know Greek or Hebrew, uh, that doesn't mean we can't get something out of just our own personal Bible study and personal personal reading. So you should have a couple of handouts uh, <clears throat> with you that we'll look at today. One is the uh, syllabus, like you'd have for any college course, and then the other is a handout called Resources for Bible Study. And I'll probably go over a few more, and as you can tell, I don't know if Eddie can zoom in on the table, and he will look at, I'll go down there and talk about some of those resources later, but I've, it's show and tell time. What I've learned over the last few years of my life, uh, teaching a lot of people who have like Logos Bible software especially, but some of the other Bible study programs, is that uh, everything on a, on a computer program, every book looks the same. Now, you look down there, you just look at your stacks of books, and you look down there, every book looks different. And you learn something about the book by how it looks. I can tell you, I can visualize what a book looks like and where on a page in that book I've written certain notes. And most of you are probably the same way. But when it comes to a a computer program, 
Every book, every page looks the same. And we lose a lot of that distinctiveness that we get with, with print books. And I think I've heard this from some people in some other disciplines, but when we learn to do things with a computer rather than the, sort of the old-fashioned way, Debbie, come on up, I'm having everybody sit up close and personal, um, is that when we uh, go back to basics and use hard copy books, you sort of, I think you learn the mechanics of what we're doing better than if you're using a computer. Because especially something like this, I think if you're learning how to use a computer, you're learning, you're letting the computer sort of automatically do the work for you, and you don't really learn the process, the methodology. And that's one thing we'll be talking about is that there is a, there is a very precise method and approach to how to do, do inductive Bible study. And so if you pro- follow the procedures and learn the procedures, then you're always going to get good results. So it just that that uh, that's an important thing. Well, before we get going, I just want to make give people online time to make sure they're logged in, and then um, we'll go over a few things. Let's just start with prayer. We'll have a as usual. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Father, we're just so grateful that you have given us your word and that we live in such a remarkable time that we can have uh, so many resources available to us to help us to dig into your word for for our own, that we, as we read, we can do some research and we can do some study on our own that gives us a great sense of, of fulfillment that we as, as everyday believers can get into your word and that you've given us, God, the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us and enables us to understand your word. And we understand that this is a growth process, too, that as we start, we may not uh, feel comfortable, we may not, may not feel as, <clears throat> as experienced or as adept at what we're doing, but that's all part of the, the process of learning uh, something new and growing and, and maturing in your word. So we pray that you give us guidance and direction as we go through this study. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, let's start off with the uh, with the syllabus. Get the syllabus out. And this is like any college course. We're going to spend most of today kind of going over uh, basic orientation of what we're going to be doing, the resources, things like that, and uh, a few things related to why it's important to be studying the Bible. Uh, this course is divine, designed to be a practical guide for and to give exercises to enable anyone to be able to read their Bible more intelligently, to research basic questions about the Bible, and to understand the basic principles of interpretation of Scripture with a view toward applying the Bible more consistently in their life. Some people call this method the O, what is it, the OIA method, observation, interpretation, and application. And so I got all of those in that opening, opening summary. We have, um, uh, this course, I've designed this so that as we film it, put it on video, we can offer it through Chafer Seminary as a credit course. So anybody who may be tuning in or watching, if you want to get credit for it, then you have to contact the Chafer Seminary office and pay tuition, and then you can get course credit for it. Otherwise, it's just free for anyone who wants to watch and anyone who wants to go through the course. It's designed for every, any believer, and so I've really designed this to be to start off very basic, probably more basic than where most of you are, 
but I don't know where everybody is, and so that way we can start at a, at a ground level and then develop from there. So in terms of the objectives, uh, first of all, that the student can learn how to read the Bible intelligently. It's important for us as believers to have a regular uh, plan for reading the Bible. But a lot of times people feel like they, they get into something, they say, I don't understand that. That doesn't sound like that fits with something I've been taught, and then they, then they get confused. So the thing is, when you get confused, you have to say, okay, I don't understand that right now. I'm just going to set that aside, but I'm going to keep going. I do that all the time. And, and there are so many things that I haven't had time to really study out, and you just have to work through those uh, later on. So uh, the purpose is so you can read, learn to read the Bible intelligently for yourself, how to use the basic study tools to investigate and research basic issues in the Bible, and how to properly interpret the Bible. So we want to develop students who are well on their way to biblical literacy and who are cultivating good habits of Bible reading and personal Bible study. Second, the student will come to learn the basic method of Bible study based on observation, interpretation, correlation, and application method of Bible study. Third, for the non-professional Bible student, that means somebody who's not teaching in Sunday school or Good News Club or something where they're actively taking this and trying to use it in terms of their own personal uh, study to teach. Um, And for those who are not involved in some sort of professional ministry, we're often just dependent upon the pastor-teacher for an in-depth study. But anybody can learn, as I say, to pan for gold. It doesn't take much if you're um, back, back years ago. I used to go up to Cripple Creek, Colorado a lot, and uh, that's where they discovered gold and had a big mining town. But it doesn't take much to be walking down a trail, and if you know what you're looking for, you can see gold just down in the ground. But it <clears throat> takes a lot of knowledge to be able to find the, the mother lode that's buried about uh, half a mile below the ground. Then you need to have a mining engineer. And I've developed the illustration that any anybody, any Tom, Dick, or Harry, or Harriet, or Susie, or whoever can learn to just pick up a certain amount of gold that's lying near the surface with a little more training. I don't know, some of you may have had the experience when you were kids going to Colorado, you'd have these places where you could pay so much money to get a pan, and you could pan for gold. And, of course, probably nobody was going to get anything because that was a tourist trap, but... Uh, if you knew something about, you could learn something about panning for gold and get a little bit more. But if you really wanted to get into the mother load, then you had to have a mining engineer come along and uh, who knew how to use all of the equipment, who knew how to dig and how to uh, implement all the safety measures and everything else, but he could strike the real mother loads. That's, that's the role of a pastor. Uh, the pastor is the one who can has the tools and the training to really dig deep into the Word and to put things together. But that doesn't mean that, that the everyday, ordinary believer under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, can't read the Bible and learn on his own. Uh, the next paragraph down, I say that for, for the Bible college or seminary student, this will introduce you to basic Bible study methods and tools, which will become the foundation later on for developing uh, exegetical skills as your studies continue. For Sunday school teachers and child evangelism fellowship teachers and camp directors and counselors and parents who want to teach their their children the Bible, this is going to give you a little more ability to do that. So it's designed for every level 
a Bible study. Now, in terms of the basic text, and we'll get into some of the requirements a little bit later, is the Howard Hendricks book, Living by the Book. And Howard Hendricks was a professor uh, of Christian education at Dallas Seminary, and his thing was Bible study methods. And he started teaching this course in the early 60s at Dallas, and he taught it up until... um, up until he went to be with the Lord, which was just recently. he um, We have the textbook, and also there's a workbook. Now, the workbook, I think, is out of print, and some people were having trouble finding the workbook. Um, did you get it used, Judy, or did you? It was used. Yeah, I think I think some of you got on it early and bought up all the used ones, and some others were going, I can't find it. And so uh, we may be needing to just... Uh, copy some of the uh, some of the worksheets and some of the exercises that are in here so that we can hand those out to hand those out to people but there's a the, the syllabus has a list of, uh, of readings and a schedule for readings for each particular class so we need that as a basic textbook then a good study Bible now we'll get into study Bibles a little bit later on but I would recommend a Ryrie study Bible, or the, the ESV Study Bible, uh, Thomas Nelson Study Bible. I'll talk about those specifically later on. There, all study Bibles are, are different, and they have different strengths and different weaknesses. But if you have a Bible that's just a plain Bible that doesn't have any notes, that doesn't have any information, just text, that's even better. Because part of the goal is to get you to read the Bible for yourself and and answer the question, what do you see on your own reading the Bible? And so that's good. The second thing is to have a concordance. Later on, we'll do some things with word studies and looking up words. And you don't need to bring those uh, to class uh, unless I say so. Uh, we may have some exercises down the road where we can. Uh, we may be good to do that. But other than that, you really don't need to have anything other than your Bible and a notebook and, and a pen. Now, just in terms of your own personal library at home, it's good to have some uh, other things. I, I suggested Unger's Bible Handbook. And if you look down on the table in front of me, I have my first Unger's Bible Handbook, which I bought in about 1974. And I probably paid about $3 for it. And then later on in the 80s, it was revised, and they put pictures in it. Of course, Unger died in the late 70s, I believe. They revised and expanded it, added added pictures, and then I think it's been revised and expanded since then. Uh, also, if you can, ha- there are a lot of uh, excellent Bible dictionaries. There's an Unger's Bible Dictionary down there. Again, I've had that since since before I went to seminary, and it's been revised uh, several times. You have one volume Bible dictionaries, and also you have one volume Bible encyclopedias, up to several volume Bible encyclopedias, like the Zondervan uh, Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible or numerous others. I mean, they come out all the time. That's one of the things that I've always done with my Logos Bible software is whenever a new Bible dictionary encyclopedia comes out, I always get that. So I've got about 20 in my Logos program because you never uh, you never know. But the, And then um, I'll just move on. I'll talk about the Faith Life Study Bible in a minute. Uh, <clears throat> well, that's the next paragraph. If you sign up for the Logos Faith Life Study Bible then that's free, and you can download that. 
to your computer, and you get some tools with that that are also free. And so that helps you. And, and you know, I've got every, almost everything Logos has ever come out with, so I can't go out and say, oh, I wonder what's free because, you know, I've already got it all. But... Um, but they have a, a Bible dictionary. Now, the neat thing about the faith life, the, I'll tell you the plus and the minus. The neat thing about the study Bible is that it's not restricted by, by print size. The problem that um, some of you may have a Thomas Nelson study Bible, which I put over here somewhere, and I really like the Nelson study Bible. I know... Uh, the, the general editor, Earl Rodmacher, pretty well. He's free grace. I also know the Old Testament editor, Rod Allen, from Dallas Seminary, as well as Wayne House, who did the uh, New Testament, and I know a number of men who worked on it. The problem that I have with it, I bought one. I was so excited. I worked with it all day in my study where I was up close and personal with it and took it to church, and I went, I can't find anything because they've broken everything into paragraphs, and the verse numbers are very, very tiny, so that a 20-year-old with 20-20 vision would have a difficult time seeing it as far away as I am in the pulpit. And I got up in the pulpit, I couldn't find anything. So I don't really use it that much. I have it electronically now, and look at the notes there. But uh, Earl told me that when they put this together, they had such a problem, and one of the reasons they went to such small print on it was to try to get it all into... Uh, a, a size that was portable. And it, as it is, it has, uh, let me see, over 2,300 pages, uh, plus the concordance at the back and um, other things, maps and other things like that. So it's, it's enormous and it's heavy. So that's a problem you have with a print book. Same thing with a print Bible dictionary or encyclopedia. You're limited by, by size and, and print and print costs. But with an electronically published uh, study Bible, you can make it as big as you want to. You can put all the notes in it that you want to, and you can put all, and the articles that are in your Bible encyclopedia are not restricted by length. So you can get a lot more information into that, and that's what Logos has done. The problem is, that the people who are writing for Lagos are coming from a broad theological spectrum. Some are Reformed, some are Arminian, some are uh, uh, dispensational. Uh, they have lots of different viewpoints and vantage points, whereas when we look at some things that we go to, for example, one reason I, emphasize, I like uh, Unger's Bible Dictionary, at least originally Unger had some sort of uh, editorial control, and so there was a much tighter theological perspective in both his, the Bible handbook and in the Bible dictionary, and you lose that with some of these other tools. So the, you just have to have more of your critical thinking um, uh, grid up in order to keep uh, from just sucking up just anything somebody says. Uh, but you always need to be that way, uh, that way anyway. So there's the... Uh, <clears throat> Faith Life Study Bible, like I said, you get the Study Bible, you get access, you get their uh, Bible Study uh, or the Bible Dictionary, and, and, and their maps and infographics and things like that, and that's all that's all free. It's a good marketing tool, and therefore, just to warn you, because that that'll suck you in. Oh, isn't this great? I need more. It's like a drug. 
When I first went to Dallas Seminary in 1974 just to check it out, I went up there to visit my good friend Randy Price, who had just started. He was in his first year. Randy had already caught the book virus and had a library at that time probably around 1,500. And I hadn't even started seminary yet, and I already had probably six or 700 books. And, of course, he went on. He just donated 10,000, 15,000 books to the library up at... uh, Liberty University, and that wasn't half of what he had, but he's been out of control for years <laughs> and wanted everybody else to join him. Uh, also, a good Bible atlas, and a good Bible atlas has, you can look at these. I have several different ones I put on the table down there. It has maps, and it has, and some have a lot more information, have a lot more pictures on different things, um, and each is a little different, has, has different uh, value to it. Then um, just a note on class meetings, we will meet every Sunday night except for October 20th. That's when we're going to have the, the next Israel event here when Vita Velasco is here. And, of course, you all will have, be in a habit. You can just show up for that. And then on December 1st, that's the Sunday night before the pre-trib conference. Pre-trib is December 2nd through 4th. I'll be gone for that. And then I think I plan this December 29th. Now, we just settled when I'm going to be going to Kiev, and I won't be leaving for Kiev until about the 17th. So we may have a couple of classes in early January before I go to Kiev. I'll be gone the last two weeks in January, but we will have a special guest speaker. Uh, Tommy Ice um, has uh, moved back to Texas, where he's happiest. And he's at uh, living outside of Fort Worth, and he's going to come down for a week, and he'll do both Sundays I'm gone and then the Tuesday and Thursday night in between. And then he's also going to be, uh, Eddie's going to help him video some, some things for some projects he has. So um, when I'm gone then, there will be a good uh, good backup speaker. I'm glad Tommy's back so we can use him in that capacity. And then when we get after the first of the year, we'll get we'll probably just spend the up. Uh, this time looking more at the initial stage, which is observation. Then we'll look at interpretation and application, and that will be after Christmas. And if you want to get it, the book that um, that's usually used in Bible colleges and seminaries for basic Bible interpretation is Roy Zuck's book. Roy Zuck was one of the great uh, older guard guys from Dallas Seminary. He was... Uh, editor of numerous, almost all their publications, and taught uh, taught hermeneutics there and academic dean, and he uh, became a personal friend uh, more so in the last uh, eight or nine years of his life, and he just went to be with the Lord back in March. But that is a, uh, that's a good book to have, to have and to use. And then just a little bit about the schedule. I've tried to put in, at least at the beginning, some a little bit of the detail, at least as far out as I could see uh, our work, and uh, this is the first class. You should there'll be a certain amount of redundancy with what I teach tonight and what's in the first two or three chapters in Hendricks, but you need to read through that. And I don't have anything in the workbook to work on yet. I'll probably I may say something, assign something later on, but we'll get more into some uh, details with exercises. Uh, starting next uh, next week. Okay, and I think that's about it. I just have the schedule down through the end of this year. 
because I'm not wasn't sure at the time what the schedule in January would be like, but we can get to that. My my idea here is that for the course to really have enough time in class for it to count as a two hour course for Chafer Seminary course, we need to have about 24 hours of, of class time, something like that. So that'll take us up into March sometime, and and that's how I see the length of the class. So does anybody have any questions or comments or? Concerns or worries or confusion. Uh, the title for of Roy's book, Roy's up. Basic Bible Interpretation. It's there in the syllabus. Hmm. Bottom of the page. And then that other handout I gave you is just some resources for Bible study, recommendations on uh, <clears throat> on study Bibles, and some other things. You can look at that. And then uh, we'll t- I'll talk more about resources a little bit later on. Okay, that took about 25 minutes. All right. Now, what I want to try to cover tonight, just some basic information about the Bible. This is sort of basic bibliology, basic information about the Bible, and why it's important for us to study the Bible and to read the Bible. We live in a time of such a, such bi- biblical illiteracy I wanted to give you my top ten, and uh, we'll start off like Letterman with our top ten list here. And these are the top ten ways that you know you're not reading your Bible enough. Number ten, the pastor announces that the sermon is from Genesis, and you have to look it up in the table of contents. <laughs> Number nine, you think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob may have had a few hit songs back in the 60s. Number eight, You open up the Gospel of Luke and a World War II savings bond falls out. Number seven, your favorite Old Testament patriarch is Hercules. Number six, a small family of woodchucks has taken up residence in the Psalms of your Bible. Number five, you become frustrated when because uh, Charlton Heston isn't listed in either the concordance or the table of contents. Number four, you catch your kids reading the Song of Solomon and you you demand, who gave you this stuff? (laughs) Number three, you think the minor prophets worked in a coal mine. And number two, you keep falling for it every time the pastor tells you to turn to 1 Hezekiah. (laughs) Number one, the number one reason the kids keep asking too many questions about your usual bedtime story Jonah the shepherd boy and his ark of many colors. Now, the Bible emphasizes that we should be students of the word. And even though we can't read Greek or Hebrew, and even though there's more precision from reading in Greek or Hebrew, very few few of us are so uh, adept at Greek or Hebrew that we can just sit down and sight read it as if it's our first language. In Acts 17.11, Luke praises the, the believers in uh, Berea. And, and when Paul comes and he goes to the synagogue and he teaches uh, from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah, they didn't just say, well, that's the Apostle Paul. Just take his word for it. They went home and they checked it out. They looked up and studied the scriptures to make sure that what he said was right. So Luke writes, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. 
So they didn't just take his word for it. They didn't just park their brain in neutral and say, well, whatever the pastor teaches, that has to be right. The word there for noble-minded is a word that has to do with uh, aristocracy. Uh, So if you want to be among uh, Christian aristocracy, then you need to be reading your Bible and, and know the Bible so that you can truly come to understand things. In the old days, and you've heard me say this many times, in, in the 19th century, it was standard in many education systems around the country to teach Greek and Latin, and in many cases, depending on where you were, Hebrew, to anyone who was coming up through grade school, through grammar school, because they were taught grammar from, the, from Greek and from Latin, because that helped you understand parts of, of English grammar. And so... Uh, uh, and it was t- standard in any congregation that the pastor would teach, and in many cases he taught just with his Greek or Hebrew text up in the pulpit in front of him, if, especially if he came out of, uh, if he was a Methodist or a Presbyterian or Episcopal, he had a higher level of training. After the Second Great Awakening in the 1820s and 1830s, uh, you started getting a lower level of standard for pastors, out, especially out on the frontier, and they didn't have as... as uh, high in education, but it was not uncommon for a church of, of maybe 150 or 200 where uh, a third to half of the men were sitting in the congregation with their Greek or Hebrew Bible open in front of them, and they could follow the pastor along, and so that was a real check on the accuracy of what, what was being taught from the pulpit. Uh, we've gone, uh, fallen a long way since, uh, since, since those days. Uh, when we read the Bible, we <clears throat> will come along. To, we, we need to learn how to study, why we study the Bible. First of all, because it's unique. It's, there's no other book, religious book, anything like the Bible. If you read the Book of Mormon, it was all translated by Joseph Smith with his, with his magical spectacles, uh, as the, uh, angel Moroni directed him. Same sort of thing happened with Muhammad. And in other religious uh, texts are all written by one person. They're all following the sayings of one person. But the Bible is unique in that it was written over a period of uh, approximately 2,000 years. Job was the first book written in the Bible. Job lived about the time of Abraham, and we, which was really more like 2200 B.C. But we don't know who actually wrote the book of Job. So from approximately the time of Abraham up to the closing of the New Testament canon in approximately A.D. 95, you have a wide spectrum. You have over uh, over 40 writers, some think over 50, over 40 different writers of Scripture who were uh, trained in different cultures and with different education systems. Moses was trained in Egypt, and he went through one of the greatest uh, education systems in his generation because he was uh, uh, from the Pharaoh's household. You later on have people like Nehemiah and Daniel who are trained in the court of, uh, of, uh, of Babylon. You have people like uh, uh, in the New Testament like uh, John who's a fisherman, and Matthew, who's a tax collector, and then you have Paul, who is considered by many who aren't even uh, Christians to be one of the greatest minds of the ancient world and had a, 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 an incredible use of Greek 
and uh, his his uh, education and background was probably beyond anyone else in his generation. And so you have a wide spectrum of backgrounds, a wide spectrum of education. Uh, they address probably the 50 or 100 most controversial issues and questions that are ever discussed in the history of mankind over a spectrum of 2,000-plus years, and they don't ever disagree. They present a belief system that is of one mind, so it is unique and it is unified, and that is because, third, it is God's direct instruction. This is You can look at the Bible as God's love letter to you. And if you have ever been in a position where you received love letters or emails from someone, uh, then you know what it is to sit down and try to parse and figure out what is is in every single statement and trying to say, well, do they dear so-and-so? Well, how do they mean that? Are they just being formal or do they really mean something by dear? Uh, every little word means something. And so that's how we should read the Bible, with that level of attention and that level of, of focus. Some of you know um, a lady who was my first-grade Sunday school teacher at Baraka, Ursula Kemp. Ursula first met her husband, Scotty, when they, she, was a, she was Jewish and she was a Shanghai Jew. She had, they, her family had escaped Germany to go to Shanghai. And that was the only place that Jews could go at that time in World War II, and so she went to Shanghai with her family. She was about 16 or 17 years old, and she finished high school and got her training. She was she and Betty Thien were the ones who wrote all the children's books at Baraka. And uh, they got their training, and, they, um, and she got her trained as a dental hygienist, and that's what she did for most of her life. She's still alive. She's about 89 or 90 now. She came to church here a few years ago just to visit, and... Um, but and I heard her whole life story because I'd heard bits and pieces and just just incredible. But when she met her husband, she had been invited by another dental hygienist to come to a Christmas party, and it was across town in the British sec- section of Shanghai. And she was in the Jewish section, and so this friend said, "Oh well, you can't drive over here. I will send a driver." And sent Scotty. He was a member of the British Constabulary Force at the time. And so Scotty went over to get her, and on the way home, Scotty, who was 32 and she was 18, announced that she was the woman he was going to marry. She thought he was drunk or crazy or both. Well, he managed to convince her to let him come and uh, talk to her dad and get permission to come and call on her. And so she translated a letter to her father, and they began to court over the next two or three months. And then the Japanese attacked and when the Japanese attacked and, and uh, took uh, control of that area, they took all of the foreign nationals, which would mean uh, Scotty, and they put him in a POW camp. And Scotty spent the remainder of World War II in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Ursula and Scotty were able to write one letter a month to each other, not more than ten words. Think about that. And um, you pay attention to every single word. That's the point of that story. This is God's love letter to us, so we need to pay attention to it. And we have aids to do that. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says that now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, 
that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. The we and the us there is not we apostles, it's not we pastor teachers, it's we church age believers. And while it is true that it's important to uh, sit under a pastor teacher because they have the training, they have the qualifications to dig into the word, that doesn't mean that we just put our Bible after Bible class in the back seat of the car and leave it there until we go to Bible class the next time. We need to be uh, reading it regularly. First Peter says in First Peter two two, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now that top line is pretty much follows the order of the of the Greek. This is one of the things that you miss out on sometimes in an English translation, even a good translation, because it tries to follow the Greek word order. And the emphasis in the Greek is on the comparison to a newborn babe. But the way it's translated in English, I'll never forget the way I, when I first realized that the Greek verb there for desire is an imperative. It's a command. It's not an indicative mood verb that babies just making a statement like a baby desires the milk desires milk that would be just an indicative descriptive sentence this isn't a descriptive sentence it is a command and so i've retranslated it by putting the command up front in english it carries the force better where peter is saying you all plural verb y'all earnestly desire, it's a command, the pure milk of the word, like a newborn babe. That's the command. You as a believer need to hunger and thirst for the word, just like a newborn babe. How does a newborn babe sound when they want to know the word, when they want milk, rather? What do they do? They cry. They let you know. They scream and holler. But you don't hear too many believers ever do that, say, you know, I just don't get the word. And they just gradually go off. They're just being starved to death, and they just go into some sort of a semi-spiritual coma because they don't get fed the word. Now, there's a couple of key words that we need to understand as we get into uh, looking at the Bible. And I'm gonna, I think I'm going to stop here. We've gone 40 minutes. We'll take just a quick because we don't have anything we're going to do. Just give everybody a quick little 10-minute break, and then we'll come back and um, and then get, get into the rest of it. So that'll give Eddie time to either cut it off or start up the new video. And we'll take a quick, quick break. <laughs> 